This episode is brought to you by Casper, where you can get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Get $50 off your order when you go to casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from last week tonight, Sex Out Loud, Making Contact, Retro Report, Propaganda, and Laverne Cox on Kepler Speakers. This has clearly been a big week for the LGBT community, but it's also been a big year for the teapot of that equation, from Caitlyn Jenner's Vanity Fair cover uh, to TV shows like Transparent uh, to another small milestone just this Friday. Actress Laverne Cox marked another milestone with the drop of a curtain at Madame Tussauds, San Francisco. Now that is a big step forward for transgender Americans, and it's frankly about time. Because bear in mind, it came after the same milestone for Spider-Americans and Wookiees. <laughs> but, but for all the strides transgender people have made lately, let's not get too complacent about how far we've come, because they still face a host of obstacles. Even when the news media are trying to be supportive, they can make dumb mistakes. Your private parts are different now, aren't they? I don't want to talk about it because it's it's still it's really personal. Don't you feel funny with the wrong genitalia? Well, Not as a joke. You stand up in the women's bathroom. You've got breast implants. <laughs> I you know I, I they're tasteful. Whatever whatever's going on there. Thank you. So if I saw you undressed, you would look like a woman to me totally. Yes. <laughs> what are you doing? It is no more okay to ask transgender people about their sex organs than it would be to ask Jimmy Carter whether or not he's circumcised. Which, by the way, he is. Smooth like a boiled carrot. And, and sometimes, sometimes, don't think about that, and sometimes the media's confusion is even more basic than that, as in the case of this Arizona weatherman just two weeks ago. And a transgender woman says she was kicked out of a Tempe bar. Let's bring it back to that earlier headline. Now, what is a transgender woman? Yes. What does that even mean now? Okay. Do Can you mean, break that? Means... She used to be a guy. But now it's a woman. This okay. Is, this is <laughs> so weird. Are you just saying a woman? I, I don't. I can't even keep up anymore. Holy shit! I, I really hope that's also how he reports the weather. Wait, wait, it used to be rainy and now it's sunny? So, so, so now it's just sunny? No, I can't even keep up anymore! I can't! This doesn't make my head work! Look, 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 let's, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe for him and for many people this is new information. Maybe he's thinking about transgender issues for the first time and he needs a minute to try and understand it. So let's take that minute to fill in that bamboozled weatherman and everyone else on some basic details. Transgender people have a gender identity that differs from the one they were assigned at birth. And that gender identity is not the same as sexual orientation. Gender identity is who you are, sexual orientation is who you love. Some transgender people do undergo hormone therapy or sex reassignment surgery as part of their transition, some do not. And interestingly, their decision on this matter is, medically speaking, none of your fucking business. And if, you're, if you're still wondering, well, hold on, hold on. What, what, what do I call a transgender person? It's so confusing. Well, actually, it's pretty simple. Call them whatever they want to be called. You can do it. We do it all the time. 
Think of it this way. David Evans woke up one day and said, everyone call me the edge. <laughs> and, and we all went, find the edge? Are we talking the noun or the verb? And, and that's... It's not just that. It's not just that. Over the past 20 years, we've agreed to call this man Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, Just Diddy, and now Puff Daddy again, and most people don't even like him. And, and here's the thing. Here's the important thing. It's genuinely crucial that we get this right, because there are more transgender people in the US than you might realise. One study estimates that nearly 700,000 American adults are transgender. That's more than the population of Boston. And you probably know someone from Boston. I'll, I'll give you a clue. It was the guy who wore a Bruins jersey to your sister's wedding. <laughs> and and while, while a handful of transgender people have been winning awards or appearing on magazine covers, the community at large has been facing some staggering challenges. A 2011 survey by the National Center for Transgender Equality found 41% of transgender people had attempted suicide. They are nearly uh, four times more likely to make less than, than $10,000 a year compared to the general population. 78% of those surveyed reported harassment during K-12 schooling, 35% reported physical assault, and 12% were sexually assaulted. That is terrible. Those statistics are so depressing, it's enough to make you angry at the very concept of numbers. F*** you symbols meant to represent a specific value! You're the absolute worst! The worst! Look, look, we've, we've clearly got work to do. Because when you're transgender, pretty much any interaction with bureaucracy can be humiliatingly difficult. Just take what happened to two transgender women when they went to the DMV in West Virginia. Both women were asked to remove all their jewelry, makeup, and wigs before the DMV would photograph them. They're saying that I need to fulfill a certain, a certain look that they are designating means male and that I'm, you know, hiding who I am, which I'm absolutely not. Both women say they were also referred to as it. Words can't explain the humiliation I felt that day. That was the worst thing in 52 years of my life I have ever felt. Listen, I'm not saying anyone has a good DMV experience, but that is the worst I have ever heard. And for the record, you get to pick virtually everything else on your driver's license. They ask you your weight. They don't weigh you like a prize hog. <laughs> Plus, the whole idea of a driver's license photo is to present how you look from day to day. That's why DMV employees tell you not to smile, because they can't imagine anyone whose normal existence involves happiness in any form. And even in, even in organisations that have seemed willing to change, that change has come frustratingly slowly. Take the military. Both the Secretary of Defence and President Obama have indicated they are open to transgender troops being able to serve. And yet, they're still banned from enlisting because of weirdly archaic restrictions on things like uh, defects of the genitalia, such as change of sex and psychosexual conditions, including but not limited to transsexualism and transvestism. Our current recruitment poster is essentially, I want you, maybe, after we talk about your genitals for a bit, I know that's weird, but for the moment, this is apparently how we do things. <laughs> And yet, even despite those restrictions on enlistment, by one estimate, there are currently 15,000 transgender service members. And while you can be discharged for being transgender, those rules are enforced inconsistently depending on your branch of service and commanding officer, meaning experiences can vary wildly. 
For, for some, like Logan Island, it could be great. What I like about this deployment is I can be my authentic self. I'm just another guy. Whereas back home, I'm still seen as female and I go by female regs and standards. Here in Afghanistan, a war zone, it's like a vacation to me because I can be myself in such an austere environment. It is not a great sign for how we treat transgender people that Afghanistan is a place where you can be yourself. That is the least likely tourism slogan for Afghanistan. But I'd, I'd put it right behind water park capital of the world and birthplace of the twerk. But, but compare that with the experience of Captain Jacob Eleazar of the Army National Guard, who faced discharge for being transgender despite his own commander's support and the fact he was being awarded a medal. The thing that stuck with me the most is as they were pinning that, that Army Commendation medal on me, my regimental commander said, thank you for everything that you've done for our regiment, Jacob. And, and use, use my real name. Um, and and I, 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 can't, I can't express uh, just the emotion of that juxtaposition. It's like you're, you're kicking me out, um, but you're acknowledging me for myself and giving me an award at the same time. That's utterly ridiculous. They gave him an award and then tried to kick him out. It's pretty much what Hollywood did to Cuba Gooding Jr. And that wasn't okay either. But, but this is the big problem. This is the big problem because even when people say the right things about the transgender community, too often practical change fails to follow. And perhaps the perfect embodiment of this concerns bathrooms. We all use them. As the good book tells us, everyone poops. <laughs> or, as it's known in England, everyone poops but the Queen. <laughs> she has people do it for her. Ac across the country, there have been efforts by lawmakers to fight non-discrimination ordinances with so-called bathroom bills, like this one in Arizona. It's a new show-me-your-papers bill for Arizona. The sex on your birth certificate would have to match the sex of the bathroom or locker room that you use. The target, transgender men and women here in Arizona. Six months in jail, $2,500 fine for just going into pee. $2,500 fine for peeing in the wrong place. Look, unless you happen to urinate a 1989 Chateau Patru, you're not even going to break even on that deal. In, in the most recent session, at least 13 bathroom bills have been introduced in state legislatures, and the reasoning behind them can be pretty insulting. Just listen to presidential candidate Mike Huckabee. We are now in city after city watching ordinances that say that your seven-year-old daughter, if she goes into the restroom, cannot be offended, and you can't be offended, if she's greeted there by a 42-year-old man who feels more like a woman than he does a man. Now, I wish someone had told me when I was in high school that I could have felt like a woman when it came time to take showers and P.E. I'm pretty sure I would have found my feminine side and said, Coach, I think I'd rather shower with the girls today. You're laughing because it sounds so ridiculous, doesn't it? There's something inherently wrong with forcing little children to, to be a part of this social experiment. No, but uh, there is something inherently wrong with forcing us to listen to your fucked up daydreams about all the sex crimes you would have committed as a teenager had you just been able to find a legal loophole. That's weird. And, and that, that kind of baseless fear-mongering is everywhere. 
It even turned up in a campaign ad when Gainesville, Florida was trying to pass one of these bills. Okay, let's, let's break that bullshit down, because first, assaulting children is still illegal. <laughs> Secondly, someone abusing a non-discrimination ordinance to assault someone in a bathroom is almost unheard of. It's a borderline imaginary crime, like dragon rustling or space bestiality. Sure, it's terrible, but it doesn't really happen. Also. Forcing transgender people into certain bathrooms can actually be much more disruptive, as activist Michael Hughes, a transgender man, showed with this photo of himself looking understandably awkward in a ladies' room. Because there are many places that Michael would fit in. Um, a tattoo parlour in Reno, uh, playing steel guitar in a Johnny Cash tribute band, or on the label of his own barbecue sauce. But a women's bathroom? Yeah, not so much. Besides, it is so much easier for everyone when people are allowed to use the bathroom that matches their gender identity rather than one that might match the genitalia they were born with. That is why the little pictures on bathroom doors are stereotypical representations of men and women and not biologically accurate depictions of penises and vaginas <laughs> because that would be troubling for children. Uh, mummy, mummy. Do I go with the one with the pouty slug or the angry goat skull? I'm scared. And yet, legislators have even tried to enforce these bills in high schools with damaging consequences. Take the case of Henry Brousseau, a transgender high school student who spoke in opposition to a proposed bathroom bill in Kentucky. Even though I've been living as a male for some time I've been ex and been accepted by my friends and family as a male, I was being forced to use a girl's bathroom at my school until very recently. Because the school administration did not support my gender identity by letting me use the restrooms concordant with my gender identity, the kids at my school bullied me. The kids thought that because the administration didn't support my gender identity, they didn't have to either. And that is the whole point. Official rules can end up legitimizing prejudice. And besides, teenagers really don't need extra ideas for how to make each other's lives miserable. That's what they do. Uh, Sit on your own, Becca. Side ponytails are so five nevers ago. <laughs> uh, uh. And look, as Henry finished his speech, it actually seemed like he'd really connected with the legislators. If you don't know a transgender kid already, you do know you do now. You know me, Henry. Please let me know how I can be of any further assistance and thank you so much for your time today and please vote no on Senate Bill seventy six. I educated myself a lot today, and I appreciate the testimony. Uh, you should be proud of pr proud of yourself for being able to stand in front of this committee and be so articulate in your comments. Henry, I love you, man. I, I appreciate you. I appreciate your courage. I can't really imagine that anyone else in this room has the kind of courage that it took for you to come and testify today. Okay, okay. I love you, man, is a little much. I love Henry, too, but he's not the best man at your wedding. He's a teenage boy trying to take a shit in the men's room. And, and it's worth noting, once they were done patting Henry on the back and then patting themselves for patting Henry, all three of those lawmakers voted to advance the bill to force him into bathrooms where he's bullied. Now, 
thankfully, that, that particular bill never became law. But that dynamic of praising a transgender person's courage and then not actually supporting them speaks to the fact that we are weirdly comfortable celebrating transgender people while simultaneously dehumanising them at the DMV, pinning awards to them as we drum them out of the military and constantly quizzing them about their genitals. And look, this is a civil rights issue. And if you are not willing to support transgender people for their sake, at least do it for your own. Because we've been through this before. We know how this thing ends. If you take the anti-civil rights side and deny people access to something they're entitled to, history is not going to be kind to you. There is no biopic where Liam Neeson kicks the shit out of a suffragist. <laughs> this, this, there's not a stamp featuring George Wallace at the schoolhouse door. And you are not going to get a monument that says at the base of it, he told people where to shit. <laughs>
places to be in society. C, always had language. And, you know, we have this sort of historical myopia, right? We're a bit short-sighted culturally, especially in North America. And so we think like 200 years ago was a really long time. But in fact, if you go back not even so long as that, 600 years, less in some places, you're, you know, up to here in trans people and artistic representations and legal discussion and all kinds of stuff about people that we would code as trans or gender queer or, you know, gender non-conforming in some way. So... I feel like in a lot of ways, really what's happening is things are getting right again, slowly. Hmm. Um, okay. But which isn't to say that I'm not super excited about Laverne Cox and about Janet Mock and about all of the people who are working very hard to make it happen, you know, um, Everyone from uh, Dr. Courtney Ziegler at TransHack, who's got a big uh, project teaching trans people how to code, all the way, you know, across the country to the folks at uh, Lambda Legal Defense who are busy litigating up and down the country, you know, making it possible for people to get their documents changed and keep their jobs and all kinds of other stuff. Like, an enormous amount is happening. And I think the media representation is sometimes catching up to that uh, and sometimes not. But, you know, I think overall it's really always positive when trans people are represented in the media in a in a neutral to positive way. Like, you know, the ongoing stories about um, someone was deceptive or someone is pretending are really dangerous. Um, but the, you know, the, the Laverne Coxes and the Janet Mocks of the world and, and Monica Roberts and Teek Milan and a lot of other people who've really been taking up space in the media recently as as pundits or as the subjects of stories um, are fantastic. And I think that part is, is really wonderful. Um, and it creates a backlash too, right? For every time uh, Laverne Cox goes on television and teaches Katie Couric a lesson and then another one, there's some yelly guy in Kentucky saying that he's going to convince all of the women he knows to get concealed carry permits for guns so that if they're, quote, stalked, unquote, by a, quote, sexual predator, right, in the women's washroom, by which he means trans women using the women's washroom, for, you know, extremely worrisome things like peeing and, I don't know, maybe washing their hands, right? This is his idea that, you know, he's going to make sure that his, his women have a gun in case that happens, right? So the news is definitely mixed in that way. Finally we step on the sender. 
this program is sponsored by Casper. They're making a name for themselves by rethinking the world of mattresses, how they're made, how they're sold, and how much they cost. They started out by obsessively engineering a mattress using both latex and memory foam, which makes for a great blend of sink and bounce. They worked out a process for having Casper mattresses made in America and still managed to keep the price shockingly fair by selling direct to buyers, bypassing all of that showroom waste. Their prices start at only $500 for a twin size and they go up from there, but even the king size is only $950. Plus, by going to casper.com slash best and using the offer code best at checkout, they'll knock off an additional $50. Now, it may sound crazy to order a mattress over the internet, but it's actually much better with Casper's risk-free trial and return policy, so you can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns in the unlikely event that you don't like the mattress. So if you're in the market, check out their website for details on the design and construction of Casper mattresses, and remember to go to casper.com slash best and use the offer code best at checkout for $50 off your order and to support this show at the same time. Lindsay Stone, Ann Arbor, Michigan is where I'm from. It's a piece that's called Trigger Warning. What's interesting is when I first started writing the piece, it wasn't really going to originally going to have a trigger warning. It wasn't going to be titled trigger warning. And when I was, it started off with the story of my friend who is also trans. <laughs> and, um, because it is someone else's personal s- story, I feel like every time I step to the mic, I have to present this piece 100%. Because I feel like if I give it anything less than that, I'm doing injustice to my friend, who the poem starts off with, and I don't think that's fair. So, there's a community of activists that are second wave feminists, and as someone who now lives in Michigan and is highly aware of the Michigan Women's Festival's policy of woman born woman, this goes out to them. Trigger warning. This poem contains graphic content dealing with violence, rape, and child sex abuse. If my chosen sister would have heard these words, she would have had to leave the room. You see, if you follow the spine through the small of her back, you will find the scar of a broken tailbone. A scar that 25 years later sits like restroom graffiti scribbled across piss-stained stalls. It reads, he was here. When I tell you that she was raped, split open, left bleeding to die in a ditch, please don't confuse this as a metaphor. At the age of nine, making wishes on stars, the world still knew her as Mel. He tried to fuck the girl out of her. He said, if you want to be a woman, you have to learn to bleed like one. As she's telling me her story, I can't help but to think of second-wave feminist Dr. Janice G. Raymond, a second-wave feminist who once said, I contend that the problem with transsexualism would best be served by morally mandating it out of existence. Janice, you must be proud 
Because my sister's rapist was only following your directions. In your pursuit of safe spaces through the exclusion of trans women, you have helped perpetuate the hunting grounds. You claim safe spaces to protect women from male privilege while excluding a whole community of women whose lives tend to be disposable. Trigger warning, stabbed to death. Trigger warning, slit throat. Trigger warning, her body was found near an interstate in Detroit, decapitated and burned. Her mother could only identify her by her torso. These are not benefits of male privilege. 2,563 less trans women to worry about invading woman-born woman spaces. Janice, you must feel like you won the lottery. Janice, there are no real numbers here. No one is counting. My sister's forgotten ghosts. A survey conducted in 1998 revealed that 50% of transgender and intersex people have been the victims of rape and assault. For many of us, our lives are nothing but trigger warnings. Janice, we may not have periods, but we're well aware that there's many out there willing to make us bleed. My trans identity is part of my history. It's part of who I am, but that doesn't make me less of a woman. It doesn't change the fact that these are the things I face on a daily basis. You know, I still have to be cautious. Matter of fact, just a couple of days ago, I, it was late night, I was hungry, I wanted to eat, but I, and we couldn't, there was only a place several blocks away to try to walk to. Used to, before transition, I would walk there by myself and not give it to, you know, a second thought. I knew I needed somebody to walk with me, you know, because I'm in a city that I don't fully know. And I'm sitting here wearing a dress. And, you know, we have the same fears. We face so many of the same struggles. And... To discredit that is just not right. I already realize that if this piece becomes popular and they catch wind of it, I'm going to be attacked. It happens time and time again. But I don't care because I want this to stop, this exposure to stop. And, you know, I would love to see some kind of dialogue happen doing this piece. I don't expect to change someone's mind who's already set in their ways. But I do hope that if there's someone who could potentially be influenced by these people who have heard this piece, they are able to think about what they just, what they heard, if we're lucky, if we can just keep it from breeding, that mentality from breeding.
Caitlyn Jenner, the woman formerly known as Bruce Jenner, made her debut in a big way. We're achieving greater and greater visibility in society. Transgender visibility might be moving from the margins into the mainstream. But what does it mean? As long as trans women of color are suffering and dying in the streets, I'm going to hold off a little bit on the celebrations. The eighth trans woman murdered in the U.S. this year. Every breath a trans person takes is an act of revolution. And while transgender people helped kick off the fight for gay equality, progress in their fight for civil rights has been decades in the making. What's shocking is not Bruce Jenner coming out. What's shocking is the way people treat us. That female side is part of me. When Bruce Jenner, now Caitlyn Jenner, told a story about being born with a body that didn't match her internal sense of who she is, many people gained a better understanding of what it means to be a transgender person. Finally, people have woken up and realized that they know someone who's transgender. With an award-winning TV show about a family patriarch changing gender, this is me. and transgender actress Laverne Cox gracing the cover of Time magazine, you might think society has reached a new level of understanding. Activist Lords Ashley Hunter says you would be mistaken. The community that I work for is wondering how they're going to eat tonight. Wondering if they're going to have health coverage. Wondering if they're even going to make it back to the shelter where they're staying. I don't want people to watch Transparent and say this is the lives of trans people. Because it is not. In 2002, Hunter came to New York City at age 26 on a one-way bus ticket from Detroit with $20 in her pocket. She planned on doing community service work in exchange for a place to stay. But when she went to a women's shelter, she was turned away for being transgender. Then, she says, things only got worse. So I found myself homeless and ended up having to be assigned to a men's shelter called Wards Island. Wards Island housed about a thousand men. And every night, there was a fear for me. I couldn't sleep. I can remember a time where I went to take a shower and a man came into a shower and raped me. And he had a razor blade. And there was nothing that I can do. When I went to the shelter staff to tell them what had happened to me, they blamed me. They told me that I didn't have to be there, that it was my choice to live this lifestyle that I was living. And so, for me, having to have those experiences, it's just a snapshot of what we have to go through. Just to live. Most trans people would rather sleep under um, an overpass or in the park then have to deal with that type of violence. Hunter runs the Trans Women of Color Collective to provide leadership and raise awareness, not only about current events, but historical ones as well. We come from a rich legacy of revolutionary freedom fighters. Historically, those stories have been erased um, from the history books. What history remembers is the 1969 Stonewall Inn uprising, the birthplace of today's gay rights movement. 
A routine police raid on an unlicensed bar, the Stonewall Inn, a gay bar in Greenwich Village. But what's been largely forgotten is the role transgender women played in kicking off that movement. Activist Randy Wicker describes how there were restrictions against serving alcohol to homosexuals in the 1960s and... Being in drag was illegal in those days. Dancing was permitted, although of course a white light would come on if a policeman came in and you had to stop dancing or find a member of the opposite sex to dance with. They really reached a point where they said, we're tired of this. And so the next time the police raided, things took a different turn. Suddenly the customers were giving the police a hard time. For the first time, the clientele sort of fought back. The protests lasted for days, and transgender people were among the hundreds who took part. Transgender people were the most motivated to fight back because they had been abused the worst by the system. But also, the second thing is they had nothing to lose. For them, it was a great opportunity to get up on a soapbox and really give it to society. What have you been doing to us? You know, you're so wrong. One of the early icons in the fight for transgender rights was the late Sylvia Rivera. Sylvia always thought of Stonewall as the beginning of her activism to make changes in the world. I was grateful to be there to see the revolution being born. She really was the mother of the transgender movement. Sylvia was a Puerto Rican street drag queen who, along with her friend Marsha P. Johnson, created Star House, a refuge for transgender runaways. These kids knew they were going to end up being just ground up by the system, you know, not being able to find jobs, being forced into prostitution. Sylvia and Marsha hadn't lived it, so they knew what they were doing. The survival instincts that made Rivera a fierce advocate were at odds, she said, with a gay rights movement that was trying to establish a more conventional identity. We do not fit into their role of Main Street gay men and women. Rivera stormed the stage after being excluded from a 1973 gay rights rally in New York City's Washington Square Park. She demanded that transgender people be recognized as part of the burgeoning lesbian and gay rights movement. You all tell me to go! She was considered kind of disruptive and a loud mouth. I believe in us getting our rights, or else I would not be out there fighting for our rights. Sylvia Rivera died in 2002. That same year, New York State passed a gay rights bill that, despite Sylvia's dying wishes, did not include protections for trans people. Even on her deathbed, she fought for the rights of her people. Across the country, in California, three years before Stonewall, a similar uprising had taken place. It had mostly been forgotten, until historian Susan Stryker stumbled on an obscure San Francisco gay magazine. I found this beautiful document, and um, I open it up, and the centerfold is this thing that says, on a hot August night in 1966, gays rose up. At Jean Compton's Cafeteria, a 24-hour diner popular with transgender women, another routine police sweep erupted in spontaneous violence. Stryker made a film about the uprising. A police car was destroyed, the corner newsstand was set on fire, and years of pent-up resentment boiled out into the night. 
It was the first collective militant action against police harassment that we know of in U.S. history by trans and queer people. The cops thought they were dealing with people who were like the lowest rung of society. Decades of those kinds of attitudes have taken their toll on the estimated 700,000 transgender people in the U.S. About half are believed to be trans men, says Nick Adams, who works for GLAAD, an LGBT advocacy organization. There isn't a lot of statistical information about the community, but it's a diverse group. Adams says the focus now should be on those most in need. Visibility really needs to translate into legislative changes that make the world a safer place for those transgender people who are really struggling. When you don't have resources, it makes you more susceptible to physical violence because now you're disposable. No one cares about you. Whatever people think is shocking about transgender people's lives is nothing compared to the injustice that we have to face every freaking day. Professor Jennifer Finney Boylan teaches in the English department at Barnard College and has written a best-selling memoir. To be trans means to be visible. If you walk out your door, it can mean you are at risk for violence. Many transgender people have been the targets of violent hate crimes. They're also at greater risk for suicide, as was the case of an Ohio transgender teen. Alcorn's suicide note ended with a plea. My death needs to mean something. Fix society, please. What's shocking is that young people like Leela Alcorn have to throw themselves in front of a truck rather than live their lives. Transgender teens and adults say they routinely endure discrimination in employment, housing, access to public bathrooms, and government willingness to acknowledge their gender status in official documents. People fire us for being who we are. The trans community has been left out of legislative advances by the gay community. Our gay and lesbian counterparts moved on and are celebrating life in ways that we have yet to experience. The priority is not marriage, um, not for black trans women. And while momentum now may be on the upswing, the movement that began nearly half a century ago still has a lot of obstacles to overcome. Sylvia will be pissed the hell off that we're still fighting and struggling and we're still dying. We'll know that our work is done when everyone can live the life that they love with honor and dignity. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. Our next topic is about um, a hashtag that's trending a bit. 
on Twitter. It's a trans health fail. And the point of this hashtag is to highlight, um, like the discrepancy that um, trans folks face when they're trying to seek healthcare. Um, so, for example, like I read a tweet where somebody said that they had to go to the ER and like one of their first thoughts wasn't like, oh, um, will I live or can I afford this? But will they treat me as a trans man? Or another thing was when um, somebody uh, showed up at an office visit and the nurse um, accused the patient of fraud because their ID, the gender on the ID didn't match um, how they were presenting. So, and then the uh, Another tweet I read was from Lynn Sirin, who's a, a trans woman of color developer, and she talks about how she also faces like another level of discrimination in terms of racism. Um, she tweeted about how um, there were white doctors belittling her and her experiences, and then she had to watch like white patients receive hormone treatment months ahead of her. So this is a, a really important issue, and actually in the next issue of Bitch, um, the blood and guts issue, a writer named Carrie Mungu. She wrote, she wrote a piece for us about this. And it talks about how um, the lack of understanding about trans patients creates a barrier in accessing healthcare, uh, both in terms of just needing coverage with health insurance and also because providers aren't trained um, to work with the specific needs of trans patients. And one of the most basic unmet needs is that um, trans patients also need... Um, access to and have a right to and means to a physical transition so that they can, you know, bring their body in alignment to their gender. And they also face a barrier in terms of accessing just like primary basic care because they may, they may encounter like transphobic providers. So it might even keep them from seeking basic care for basic health issues that we face every day because they don't want to have to deal with transphobic people or transphobia. So I was trying to figure out like why this hashtag came about. And it turns out there's this organization, um, the startup called My Trans Health. And they're doing a Kickstarter campaign to raise money because they want to um, create a website that'll be like a hub for trans patients to find providers who will be like culturally competent to, to treat them. Um, and they're saying that this website will be free. Um and and it's right now. I think they're starting a pilot thing where, when it does start, it'll be focused on like bigger cities. So you, if you're lucky enough to live in a bigger city, you can probably find a provider who will work with you. Um, but it's been a really eye-opening thing to read um, about these experiences. Yeah, I, I, this hashtag is really interesting. I just wanted to read a couple of the ones that really struck me from it. Um, someone named Julie Ray shared this experience. Uh, this is this is their tweet. Nurse, when was your last period? Me, never. I'm transgender. Nurse, you really fooled me. I thought you were a woman. Hashtag trans health fail. Here's another one uh, from Mary the TNF on Twitter. A nurse tried to call me back from my appointment, but then shouted, this can't be you. This chart says male. Hashtag trans health fail. And I think these are really interesting and illuminating because like, we've been talking about trans inclusive health care for years. And the way I've mostly heard it talked about is making sure that insurance covers um, uh, transitioning and transgender healthcare needs. But I haven't talked about it so much in terms of just making sure that doctors are culturally competent and nurses are culturally competent in how they treat trans people and don't um, misgender them or actively make them feel uncomfortable for their gender identity. Yeah, and in the piece for the next issue of Bitch, um, it's it's centered around a story of somebody who was in a car accident, and um, and 
you know, once they got to the ER, everybody was misgendering them and that they also felt like their bodies were being gawked at by the providers because they had not seen patients like them. Um, that just seems so violating, especially when you're in this time where you're so vulnerable. Um, and to think that the people who are supposed to help you and theoretically save you, um, help you to recover cannot even respect like the most basic part of your identity. Uh, so this is just really interesting to see these experiences. And I think that like we need to talk about this more so that, um, trans inclusive healthcare doesn't become like a fringe thing that's being offered by health insurance or, or by, by providers, but like that it's just part of normal everyday coverage for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think most people are kind of a little bit nervous about going to the doctor. I know I'm always nervous about going to the doctor and nervous about them judging me, and I like get really sensitive about it. <laughs> like, I, like anything they say about my body, I'm like, what are you saying about my blood pressure? My blood pressure's fine, <laughs> you know? And so I think adding gender identity. To that, it's like another layer of feeling like, oh, fuck, is this something that that they're going to make into a big deal or that I'm not going to be treated fairly because of this? Right. Like they'll make it into a big deal and then I won't receive adequate care because there was some of those tweets there. People were saying that, like, I actually received inadequate care to the part to the point where um, it may have really affected my life in a long term detrimental way. That's really scary. Les crayons paraissaient murmurent en écho La petite chansonnette qui me monte à la tête Si c'est toi et moi comme si c'était nous À quel jeu on joue Juste ce ciel le soleil You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, support my trans health. So I went to the doctor. Uh, I was at an appointment one time with a doctor. The intake nurse took me in. And I was having a lot of stomach pains. And he said, oh, it's a stomach problem, so it must be a female problem. I show up to the appointment, and the lady's completely confused because I'm sitting there, you know, with facial hair. And she's like, where's your girlfriend? She had asked me, you know, when was your last menstrual period? And I'm just like, you know, the name on the account isn't changed yet, so you kind of know... You know, I'm, I'm trans. All my body was exposed, and the medical team and the EMTs and also other hospital staff that were not even part of my um, care were looking at me and talking about me. The doctor that was treating me, uh, telling me that he would have to classify me as an MSM, a man who has sex with men. And me being confused and saying, no, I'm, I'm not a gay male. I've been on medication for a long time. I went into the appointment. I told her exactly what I needed. I gave her my entire medical history, including all of my files from my previous doctor. And she still prescribed me the wrong medication, which I didn't find out until four months later after I'd already been taking it. Once I walked in to the first therapist, it was essentially him saying, we don't really have the tools to help you. I had a psychiatrist once who uh, just refused to see me. He said he wasn't familiar with trans stuff at all, that it was disgusting. The doctor didn't know how to write my testosterone prescriptions. It seems like the doctor was more interested in how weird my genitals looked than he was in helping me fix my stomach problems. The EMT refused to believe I was trans because I was so hairy. I asked the doctor if she sees anyone who's trans, and she said, yeah, I see them walking around. The nurse looked up at me 
and says, you look good as a woman, as if that was supposed to be some kind of compliment. The gynecologist looked at me and said, is it supposed to be that big? How do you not have a prostate? We don't have the tools to help you. I don't know what trans is. I can't help you. Just leave. My name is Cade Clark. And I'm Robin Kanner. And we're two of the four founders of My Trans Health, a free location-based website that connects trans people with doctors who care. Our goal with My Trans Health is to prevent those uncomfortable and unnecessary, traumatizing medical experiences that we've all been through. My Trans Health is going to help curate a responsible list of healthcare providers that are going to be able to help you. We're building a portal for the community to use, but it's also reliant on all of you, contributing the experience that you've had to be able to rate and review doctors and share them with everyone else. Your contribution will help with startup costs, including web development, design, hosting, and outreach. A small donation, a share on Facebook or Twitter, anything you can do to get the word out there. Thanks so much for watching. My Trans Health will see you all soon. Thank you. Obviously, they said it better than I could have, so that gives you a sense of what they're all about. And now I'm happy to just add that they've already had success with a start in New York City and Miami and a launch in San Francisco when they hit their first fundraising goal. Next up, Chicago and Philadelphia with no plans to stop. Trans people in this country face four times the national average for HIV infection. Half of trans patients educate their own doctors about their care needs. One in four trans people has delayed care due to fear of or experienced discrimination, and 19% were flat-out denied care. If you're able, support the effort to bring quality health care to more than 750,000 people who need it. You can also follow and amplify the hashtag TransHealthFail thread where real people are telling stories that will shock and move you. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If supporting the effort to end stories on hashtag Trans Health Fail matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about my trans health via social media so that others in your network can join in too. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? There was a moment about 10 years ago when I was, when I was walk, walking to the subway on the Upper West Side. It was the 4th of July, and I was wearing a red, white, and blue dress. It's was feeling very patriotic. And it was really tight, and I and I passed these these two men. One appeared to be Latino, and the other appeared to be black. And the Latin guy says, "Yo, mama, can I holla at you?" <laughs> and and the black guy said, "Yo, dude, that's an N word." And then the Latin guy says, "No, man, that's a bitch." And the black guy said, "No, that's an N word." And they began to argue. They began to argue about whether I was the, the B word or the N word. <laughs> mm -hmm. What lovely options. <laughs>
And, and I was just standing there at the light, like waiting for it to change. Please light change so I can cross the street because they just needed to cross the street. And at one point, the Latin guy turns to me and says, you ain't an N-word, are you? And that that moment is sort of indicative of a lot of the street harassment that I've that I've had to endure. And and that street harassment started first because these men were found me attractive because I'm a woman. And then they realized that I was trans and it became something else. It turned into something else. And so many trans women have to experience this. Just just last month in New York City, a young girl named Ilan Nettles was walking down the street in Harlem with her friend and she was catcalled by a few guys. They realized that she was trans and then they beat her to death. In 2001, a trans woman named Amanda Milan, who I, I knew but not very well, something similar happened to her in the Times Square area, and she was stabbed to death. It is often our lives are often in danger simply for being who we are when we are trans women. And there there are a lot of intersecting identities and intersecting oppressions that make that happen. That moment when I was called the B or the N word, it, 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 it was a moment where misogyny was intersecting with transphobia, was intersecting with some racist stuff. And the racial piece is actually really important because I, I've talked to a lot of, of, of white trans women who haven't experienced quite the level of street harassment that I have. And I've gotten in trouble by saying this publicly that most of the street harassment I've experienced has been from other black folks. And, and that's not to suggest that black folks are more homophobic or transphobic than everybody else because I don't believe that. But there are some homophobic and transphobic black folks. And I think the reason for that is, is that there is a collective trauma that a lot of black folks are dealing with in this country that, that dates back to slavery and to the Jim Crow South. It's, most of us know that um, during, this, during slavery and during Jim Crow, black bodies, usually black male bodies, were often lynched. And in these lynchings, the, the men's genitals were cut off. Sometimes they were pickled and sometimes they were sold. There's this sort of historic fear and fascination with, with black male sexuality. And I believe that a lot of black folks feel that there is this historic emasculation that has been happening in white supremacy of black male bodies. And I think a lot of black folks dealing with a lot of post-traumatic stress see trans, my trans woman's body, and, and, and feel that I'm the, the embodiment of this historic emasculation come to life. So often when I am called out on the street, it's as if I am a disgrace to the race because I am trans. And I understand that as trauma. I have love I have so much love for my black brothers and sisters who might call me out on the street because I get it. I understand. They're in pain. And I feel so often our oppressors are in a lot of, lot of pain. I think whenever someone needs to call out someone else for who they are and, and, and make fun of them, it's because they don't feel comfortable with who they are. 
And so if anyone ever has a problem with someone else, I ask you to look at yourselves first. What is it about you that you have a problem with? What is it about you that you have a problem with? And I also think it's important that when we talk about bullying, we understand that when kids, LGBTQI kids are bullied, oftentimes it is because of their gender expression. We, we hear the gay slurs, the anti-gay slurs, and it's really about these kids not conforming to the sex that they were assigned at birth. Their gender expression is not meeting the expectations of society. So we have to begin to create spaces where we can express our gender in ways that are true to ourselves. The, the gender binary model, most of us don't fit that, and that's okay. And I think, too, the violence that so many trans women experience. Um, trans women of color are um, disproportionately victims of violence. Our homicide rate is the highest in the LGBT community. It went from 43% in 2011 to almost 54% of all LGBTQ homicides were trans women and mostly trans women of color. There is a link between the bullying that we inflict on our LGBTQ youth and the violence that so many trans women experience. What are we going to do about that? I think, I think love is the answer. Um, Cornel West reminds us that justice is what love looks like in public. And I love that because I feel that love, if we can love transgender people, that will be a revolutionary act. Hi, Jay. This is Jeff from Sacramento, California. I want to respond to the comments on inflation by Matt from Maryland in last uh, week's show. In the interest of time, I'm sticking with simplified examples, so there absolutely will be a fair number of nuanced ways to poke holes in them. I've given considerable thought to inflation over the decades. I'm old enough to have heard stories from my family about their experiences during the deflation of the Great Depression and also to have lived through periods of low, stable inflation as well as periods of high and highly unstable inflation. By my analysis, Matt's assertion that inflation is a tactic used by the rich to injure the poor could not be more wrong. I begin by pointing out that the top priority of the Fed, the Treasury, and all central banks is to keep inflation low. These agencies serve the interests of the very rich almost exclusively. So if they're fighting inflation, it can only be because inflation hurts the rich. And what effects inflation may have on the poor, good, bad, or indifferent, is totally irrelevant to them. As I see it, low to moderate inflation benefits indebted working people and reduces the value of capital and therefore reduces the political and economic power of those who control the most capital. I intend to briefly lay out how inflation is helpful to people who incur debt to buy a home or make some other capital investment, but inflation is nonetheless helpful even to those with consumer debt. 
Let me give a highly schematized example of how inflation helps indebted working people. I make only two structural assumptions that working people with the debt are employed. And as has almost uniformly been the case since 1950, the family income will rise in arrears, admittedly, but at about the rate of inflation. Let's say the family's income is $50,000 a year and the inflation rate is about 6%. They purchase a house with a mortgage of $100,000. At this point, their annual income is 50% of the debt and their net worth is zero. The $100,000 house less the $100,000 debt. For simplicity's sake, let's assume they make interest-only payments for 10 years. And at the end of the 10 years, their house will have appreciated at about the rate of inflation and be worth $200,000. Their debt will still be $100,000. The family income will also be $100,000. At this point, their family income is 100% of their debt. Their net worth is $100,000. The $200,000 house less the $100,000 mortgage. The family is less indebted and has more wealth than it started out with because of inflation. That's it. I chose the figures to make the demonstration easy to follow, but people can plug in any numbers they want. The lower the inflation rate, the less beneficial it is to, to the debtor. Listeners can change the interest-only scenario to a more standard mortgage scenario, and it will make the wealth effect stronger. No matter what numbers or conditions you plug in, Inflation always helps working people with their debt. Logically, inflation of, say, 50% would work even better, but the other effects of that sort of hyperinflation become too hard to manage. The period of wage catch-up is particularly difficult and often impossible during a hyperinflation. I realize that a sample of four is not strong evidence, but the scenario I lay out has, over the decades, created millions of dollars in wealth for my parents and in-laws, for my wife and me, and now for our children. Thanks. Keep up the good work. I love your program, and share it as much as I can. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, Jay. This is Charlie from Cincinnati. Um, I'm just calling regarding the uh, really outstanding show you published last week on immigration. Um, I wanted to highlight the tremendously important point that was raised in that second-to-last clip you shared uh, from Learn Liberty, um, which dealt with the economic gains that stem from more open immigration policies. Uh, I absolutely believe that progressives should continue to assert that more open and compassionate immigration policies are morally right, but I really don't think we should shy away from pointing out that as that you know, clip explained, liberalization of immigration uh, and labor is also extremely economically efficient. Um, cons conservatives have made it pretty clear that they care a lot more about a line on a map than they do about human beings, but maybe we could get their attention if instead of just ridiculing them for being xenophobes, we also accuse them of being anti-free market protectionists. Um, I just got done reading a really great book called The Globalization Paradox by Harvard economist Danny Roderick. Uh, and he points out the hypocrisy in the fact that conservatives praise globalization and trade and finance, but they continue to oppose the liberalization of labor because it benefits big corporations to have cheap labor available internationally. 
it was easier for workers in poor and developing countries to immigrate to wealthy countries where wages are higher and working conditions are better, then these workers would, of course, gain a great deal of bargaining power and would be more difficult to exploit. And this would, I guess, then you know, shift the whole, the whole manufacturing paradigm, really, away from the race to the bottom that we kind of have right now, uh, and it would empower workers to demand better wages and better working conditions. Roderick also explained in that book that even if we eliminated every last tariff on Earth, global economic output would only rise about a, a third of a percent, and um, it would reshuffle a great deal of income to the very top, um, away from the lower and middle classes. So, you know, as the clip you shared explains, a third of a percent boost in global wealth uh, is, is nothing compared to the gains that could be achieved by implementing more open immigration policies. So. You know, li listeners of your show surely know that most conservatives only like markets when they uh, serve, the, you know, the interests of the the one percent. Um, but I don't think that you know us on the left really call them out for it quite enough. And you know, I think the immigration debate is one area where you know exposing their hypocrisy could actually help tip the scales in our favor. So thanks for the show as always, and keep up the great work. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the Voice Memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. In either case, Keep your messages short and sweet, and there's a much better chance they'll be played. Now today, I want to touch on the big news that's making waves right now. Over the weekend, Black Lives Matter disrupted another Bernie Sanders speech. I did an episode when uh, they interrupted Netroots Nation, and so you can go back and hear my entire perspective on, on that situation. Uh, this is sort of a follow-up to that, and of course I don't have a, an episode ready on the subject just yet. But I wanted to address it, and uh, you know, it, it made news in progressive circles, and it's creating a huge divide because a lot of progressives uh, really didn't think that the protest was handled, quote unquote, in the right way. And uh, it, of course, a lot of people thought the same thing about Nehru's Nation. So I wanted to give my two cents. Now, a lot of the outrage that has been directed at the protest has come in the form of questions. How dare they? Why attack Bernie when he's already on your side? Why not attack Hillary instead? Why alienate white supporters of Black Lives Matter? And so on and so on. Well, I have some thoughts about the answers to all of these questions, and I didn't even realize this until listeners started telling me uh, sort of recently but apparently I'm developing a bit of a reputation for being able to explain things clearly and calmly. So I could spend this time answering all of those questions, but I'm not going to do that today. Uh, maybe another day. Today, I have a bigger idea I want to talk about, and that's how to handle shit you don't understand. If you think that either I'm just a good judge of what clips to put in the show, or that I'm good at explaining things in these final comments sections, then let me let you in on the secret for my success. I don't talk very much, and I listen a whole hell of a lot. That's the secret formula. The more you listen to others, the more knowledge and understanding you're going to have. Even when people are ultimately wrong in what they're saying, hearing them out helps you understand where they're coming from and what their motivations are, which is sometimes even more important to gaining understanding. And then secondly, start with the assumption 
that people are rational actors who know what they're doing. Now, of course, many people are not rational and they don't know what they're doing, but you should never assume that up front. If someone is doing something you disagree with or that you think is destructive, starting with the assumption that that person has rational reasons for their actions helps you open your mind to finding out what those reasons are. Assume you're the one with the misunderstanding first. Gather as much information as you can to either clear up your misunderstanding or prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you're right and they're wrong. Or, thirdly, realize that there's another option, which is that the two of you simply have different goals and that you're both right coming from each of your perspectives. So if you find yourself asking any of those questions about the Black Lives Matter activists that I listed before, make sure you're actually asking the question rather than stating your opinion in the form of a question. You know, I, why aren't they protesting Hillary instead of Bernie could just as easily mean they're wrong for protesting Bernie. It would make more sense to protest Hillary. So ask yourself, which are you doing? Are you asking the question or are you making a statement? Are you assuming that those protesters don't know what they're doing and they're being self-destructive or they're hurting their cause in the long run? Or are you starting with the assumption that they're rational actors with reasons for their actions? Now, it's possible that they are both rational actors with reasons for their actions, and time will eventually tell that what they're doing is ultimately self-destructive and hurting their own cause, but probably best to hear them out before assuming that. So if you're asking the question in good faith and you really want answers, then I've got good news for you. There are actually answers to all of those questions. All you have to do is listen. So for a straightforward explanation of what happened, you can check out the article, Bernie Sanders Abandons Speech Following Black Lives Matter Protest. That's from The Daily Dot. For an explanation of the conversation happening in the wake of the protest, you know, mostly on social media, then read the article, Bernie Sanders, Black Lives Matter, and the Racial Divide in Seattle. That's from the Seattle Globalist. And for even more detail and a broader perspective, which includes the protests in Ferguson, marking the anniversary of the death of Mike Brown, then read, Black Lives Matter protesters are not the problem. And that's from The New Republic. And to hear from one of the Seattle Black Lives Matter protesters directly, watch the YouTube video put out by This Week in Blackness just last night, titled Marissa Janae Johnson Speaks, hashtag BLM, Sanders, and White Progressives TM. That's posted on the This Week in Blackness YouTube page, which is blackness.tv. If you have even more time to dedicate and you want a mix of somewhat divergent opinions to pull from, then uh, I suggest listening to the August 8th episode of the podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure, the August 9th episode of the podcast, The Black Guy Who Tips, the August 10th episode of the podcast, The Benjamin Dixon Show, and the August 11th episode of This Week in Blackness, which includes the interview with the protester that I mentioned before. And if you don't have enough spare time available to dedicate to reading and listening to all or any of those sources, and you just want to wait for me to put together an episode on it, then that's fine too. Give me a week or so. I'll see what I can put together. But until then, see if you can temper any anger or frustration or confusion or anything like that you may have with this news story or Black Lives Matter in general or Bernie Sanders or anything. Temper it with the idea that you may just not know everything you need to know in order to have an informed opinion. So if you want to be right, but you're not sure if you have a deep and broad understanding of the topic at hand, then just remember the formula, talk less 
and listen more. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your account at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past our sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our sad stories And wonder what we're doing